This episode is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information on this podcast, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today we'll be discussing the Danelaw, the name which was given to those portions of England in which the Vikings or Danes ruled. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Jane Kershaw of the University of Oxford, whose research interests cover a great number of subjects pertaining to the Viking Age, including early medieval and Viking Age archaeology, the Scandinavian settlements in Britain, Viking silver, and more. Dr. Kershaw, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, I have to tell you before we begin, I loved listening to your appearance on BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Uh, that is indeed one of my favorite radio programs and uh, historical podcasts. So that was a, a delight. But, you know, talking about the, the Dane Law, um, very basically, for those who are not familiar, I vaguely mentioned it in the introduction, uh, but, but what is the Dane Law? What does this name mean? Well, the way it's used today by historians and archaeologists is mainly a geographic term to describe the area of England that was uh, lived in and ruled by the Danes in the late 9th and 10th century. Um, and this is a geographic area that we know quite a lot about because there's a treaty between Alfred and the Viking leader Guthrum, which divides up the land. Um, so we think of the Dana as, as an area um, northwest of a line stretching from London, then diagonally northwest towards Chester. So everything to the north of that is uh, Danelaw, and to the south is English England. But how it's used at the time is actually a bit different. And there it's clear that the Danelaw is, um, it's a kind of, it's a legal concept. It, it's where Danish law is in place. Um, and it describes um, a legal province within the Kingdom of England. Um, so the, they, it, it's the kind of same geographic area, but it's primarily a legal term when it first appears in written documents, which is in the early 11th century. So how did the Dane law come to be? Could you tell us about the formation of this um, geographical location, why the Vikings came to those portions of England and came to inhabit them, and how they uh, successfully implemented their laws and jurisdictions? Yeah, so the Danes had been raiding in England, uh, well, the Scandinavian raids for about 70 or 80 years um, by the time the Dane law um, comes into existence. Um, 
It all peaks around uh, the 860s when a great heathen army comes to Britain and starts one by one taking over the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So they take over East Anglia, they move up into York, take over Northumbria, um, and also uh, Mercia, and they install puppet rulers in their place. They don't manage to take over Wessex, which is ruled by Alfred the Great. So that's the last kind of standing English kingdom. Um, For those listeners who watch um, The Last Kingdom, The Last Kingdom is uh, Alfred's Kingdom of Wessex. Um, so, So through military might, they take over these areas, probably installing puppet rulers in their place while they're still out campaigning. And then in the 870s, they start to settle down. Um, we have these references in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that say they shared out the land and proceeded to plough and to support themselves. So they move from being a raiding army um, to, to settling and to farming, sustaining their way of life. One of their last great battles is with Alfred the Great at Eddington in Wiltshire. Um, Alfred uh, defeats the Vikings and they agree to leave his kingdom. Um, the leader and his men agree to become Christian. And Alfred is then their kind of godfather. They, they owe, um, Alfred is their lord, if you like. Um, so they kind of submit to Alfred um, and they're given safe passage, it seems, to go and settle elsewhere. And they settle in East Anglia. So we have Vikings settling around York, uh, so modern day Yorkshire. We have Vikings settling in the eastern part of Mercia, which is the East Midlands, and also Vikings settling in East Anglia. Um, And it's from a treaty drawn up between the Viking leader Guthrum and Alfred the Great um, that we get the first sign that there's a kind of official boundary um, between the areas of Danish settlement and the rest of England. So you hinted at it before a little bit, but did the Vikings get on, and especially when they first, I should say, the Danes, when they first started settling these geographical locations, did they get on uh, fairly peaceably with the uh, the English and the Anglo-Saxons? Or what were those first sort of conflicts and encounters like? Was there a lot of um, sort of cultural clashes as well, other than just sort of militaristic ones? Yeah, we've we've got no evidence that there was any great violent clashes um, between the people who are already living in those areas and the incoming Scandinavians. Um, and indeed, the, this treaty between Alfred and Guthrum assumes that they will, people will be coming into contact with each other, um, although it does put a very high um, blood price on um, both free English and Danish men in this treaty. It basically means um, if the English and the Danish kill each other, these kind of high-ranking um, men, um, then you're going to really have to pay for it. So in a way, it does actually anticipate that there might be some animosity, some violence going on between the Danes and the English, and it's trying its best to make sure that doesn't happen um, by imposing a strict financial penalty. Um, so, so I do think that, that things wouldn't always have been straightforward. And indeed, when you're coming into a territory and you're taking land, um, I think that's rarely um, a peaceful situation. Um, so I do think there would have been um, animosity and, and violence between the two groups. 
but it's not something that the sources make a big deal out of. What was the cultural impact like, sort of the cultural legacy of the um, the Dane law? You know, the um, people of Scandinavian origin inhabiting great portions of England. What sort of beliefs and ideas and um, elements of culture did they did they bring to England that um, could perhaps even still be seen today? Yeah, there are, there are lots of different elements of, of of culture and economy and society that they influence. Um, I think the the major thing is that they spoke Old Norse, and so they give their children's uh, distinctive names that would have been very different to the Anglo-Saxons. They would have spoken a language that, if you were Anglo-Saxon, you you probably could, if you strained and listened really hard, understand what they were saying, um, and vice versa. But it's a distinctive language nonetheless. And they gave names to places in the landscape in their Old Norse language. And that survives today. So words like take um, and husband and our days of the week all um, go back to uh, have Norse origins. So that's a very big impact. Um, They also influence the economy, partly because um, there's a lot of urban growth in this period with towns that are that are plugged into very long distance Scandinavian trade networks. And we see kind of economic booms in parts of um, the East Midlands and Northumbria, where towns really take off in a way that they don't seem to do in English England. The Vikings also have an enormous amount of silver. This is uh, loot, um, as well as uh, silver that they've gained through trade. And there's immense amounts sloshing around um, in Viking purses in England in the 9th and 10th century. We have a lot of silver hoards from, from this time period and also ingots and arm rings that, are, that, are just, that have been lost and that people find through metal detecting. So we know they were incredibly wealthy. Um, they were also doing things differently. They were, so they were speaking Old Norse. They were dressing differently. We have finds of female jewelry, um, but also um, some like strap fittings, um, other items of clothing that suggest that that actually the way they were appearing and dressing was different um, from the Anglo-Saxons. They were using bullion um, alongside coin, which means that when they bought something, instead of using coin like we were today, they would take out an ingot or a piece of arm ring. They would chop it up, put it on a scale, weigh it um, with little weights that look like dice, um, and then maybe test it by by nicking or pecking the silver to make sure it's good silver and it's not debased um, or plated. Um, and and this is a this is a distinctly Scandinavian practice that the Vikings have brought over to England. Um, there's also hints of other Vikingy things that they're doing that we don't have the archaeological evidence for, but it is uh, suggested. So there's a place name um, called Hesketh um, in Yorkshire, um, and that's quite interesting because it, it seems to derive from Hesterskaith, which uh, means horse race or horse race track. Um, and so it might be that this is a place where the Vikings were actually racing horses, and um, so a dis- distinctly Scandinavian pastime. Um, they would have also had their own forms of assembly. And again, it's through place names that contain the element thing, uh, which you see across the Viking world um, and also in England. And these might be public meeting places where 
laws and rules are decided. So we, we do, I think, have, have this sense that it is a distinct culture um, and with, a, with a, a different basis for the economy where things aren't quite uh, the same as on the other side of the Danelaw boundary. Now, I know you've done a, a great deal of, of work in relation to archaeology, and you mentioned some silver coin hoards. Are there any notable archaeological finds um, that can really tell us more about the Dane law and who the, who the Danes were, really, that, that lived in these portions of England? Yeah, well, it's archaeology, I'd say, like, his, historically, it's not been the most forthcoming source um, of information. So for, for early medieval um, periods, generally, people often look at burials um, and they look at uh, rural settlements. And we, we don't have any certain rural settlement from the Dane law that you can say 100% is a, is a Viking settlement. And this, this probably reflects the fact that the Vikings aren't building their houses in a distinctly Scandinavian manner. They're not building longhouses, probably because the climate doesn't require it. Um, and the other thing people look at are, are burials. And there are a, there's a scatter of so-called Scandinavian burials, which can mean a huge variety of things, but that's normally taken to mean um, cremation or burial with grave goods, because both these things are, are not typically done by the Anglo-Saxons at the time. And there's, there's a handful of these, but we don't have very many. So what we do have a lot of um, increasingly is, is metal detector finds. And I think this, it's these that kind of give us a, a flavour of what's going on in the countryside. So not necessarily in the towns, because metal detecting doesn't take place in urban environments. Um, but in the countryside, this is where we find the, the silver and the weights. This is where we find the Scandinavian jewellery. Um, we find things like Thor's hammers um, and Valkyrie pendants, things probably worn by the first generation of Scandinavian settlers that reveal that they were not Christian when they arrived in England, but were pagans. They had a, had a pre-Christian Norse religion. Um, and, and, and this, I think, is, is something that, because it's very personal, it would have been worn. Um, it gives us an indication of uh, Norse belief. Um, we also find sculpture, uh, especially in uh, the north of the Danelaw, um, and this is something, it's a bit later uh, than the other uh, aspects of archaeology, it's probably from the 10th century. And this is things that they, sculptures that they put up after they do convert to Christianity, and they decorate them with Norse artwork. Uh, so we get things in, in styles that are called Bora and Yelling. Um, sometimes they show Norse mythology, sometimes Norse legends. Um, other times they depict warriors with their swords and their um, armor, and and it's this. So they're like depicting secular images of themselves on their on these uh, stone sculptures, which are probably put up to as grave markers. So they they indicate where these people are, are buried. Um, so there is um, there's a range of archaeological uh, data, but f for me, it's the small finds that really uh, show us. The, the intimate detail of their lives. Now, how are we to think of the Dane law and the Danes living there? I mean, are these, you know, are these sort of Vikings unified under one single banner? Are these people who came to England from Scandinavia in sort of one 
one sweep of immigration? Or are these people who are migrating to England over a period of time from many different places within Scandinavia? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because the the historical sources will tend to say Danes as if everyone is from uh, Viking Age Denmark, which isn't just modern day Denmark, but includes southern Sweden, uh, southern Norway and north Germany as well. Um, I see it as I think there's assessment by the Viking Great Army, which is in itself um, lots of different bands of Vikings, probably quite dispersed geographically. Um, coming together, joining up for the purpose of campaigning and then settling. And it is is noteworthy that when they settle the land, they do split off. So one group goes to Northumbria, one group goes into East Anglia and Cambridge. Um, and, and so you get this sense that they were uh, separate at the beginning and they, uh, at the end, they dissolve into these separate groups. Whether that has a regional geographic grouping is is quite interesting. Um, and then there's a second later settlement, which I think is based on families, um, because we have evidence for female uh, Scandinavian jewellery. And I think this happens mostly in the late 9th and 10th centuries. It, it probably emanates mostly from southern Scandinavia, because the styles of the messiwork we have are really strongly correlated with southern Scandinavia, and not, for instance, Eastern Sweden. Um, so, so it does seem to me that that's where the bulk of the evidence of, of the ties are, um, although there's probably a smaller element from a wider geographic area. Um, and but it's, it's also clear that that's not the end of settlement. It's not that there's a migration event that's a once and for all event. Migration continues um, through the 10th century. And indeed, we, we get later dress items coming through. We also have dirhams which are Islamic silver coins, which are terrific for archaeologists because they have a date on them. So we know when they were minted. And we have coins, I think the latest coin is 929, 930, um, that's found in the Yorkshire Wolds. Um, and this is something that was minted in Uzbekistan. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's going to take a few years to get to Yorkshire. Um, so this suggests that um, you know, there's, there's still a kind of movement of, of people and of goods um, throughout the 10th century. It's, it's not all taking place right at the beginning, um, although the bulk um, of the movement is a, a late night century one. Now, this is something which really interests me. You mentioned um, the great number of wealth found in the form of namely silver um, found within the Dane lot. Now, Talking about you know the Arabic dirhams and other um, coinage, how are we to think about currency within the Dane law? You know, is this something where one can take, say, um, five Arabic dirhams and buy you know a piece of of leather or something, or is it all all by weight, as you mentioned before? Yeah, it's it does seem that certainly in the countryside, I, I think it, it in in Scandinavian areas a lot would have been done by. Um, weighing out silver. I think it depends on who you're dealing with and also what the scale of transaction is. For large value payments, so if you want to sell a lot of foodstuffs, if you want to buy livestock, if you're even making social payments, so you're paying a bride wealth um, or a blood price or, or something like that, then I think you are going to use bullion because it's, it's both um, more practical 
um and um it's it's a kind of socially embedded as well you will know how to weigh out your silver how to test it you'll know what you're looking for when you test that silver so it's it's a a way of doing business that builds social bonds um as well as achieves its economic objective i think in the towns it's going to be a bit different because their currency is more strictly controlled um by the the various kings um in the Dane law. And there, I think you're more likely to be using a coin economy. Um, so you're going to get out your, your two Dane law coins um, and you'd use them in a way that we would use coinage today. Um, and there's probably a grey area where people are walking around and they've got coins and they've got bullion in their purse and they, they make a decision about what currency to use based on um, how much they're they're buying and who they're trading with, whether they expect to see them again or not, um, and and what currency would be acceptable to that person as well. Um, so I think they're quite flexible in terms of of a currency, and it's clear that the two are operating side by side in some context. Certainly. Well, Dr. Jane Kershaw, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I will certainly put uh, links in the description of this episode to your interview on BBC Radio Force in our time, as well as the places that people can find out more about you and your research. But thank you for joining me today. Thanks. It was fun. 